Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Hi everybody, we have a great episode for you today mm-hmm. that we put together as quick as we could in response to rapidly developing current events, evictions. Yes, uh, Naomi, now you summoned together the, the two of us at the very last minute mm-hmm. uh, to make this this very quick episode, so why don't you tell us why? Basically, Tim, history is back. History never went away. History <laughs> is happening right now in Roscommon. Okay, all right. So Roscommon, of course, in the North Midlands um, of Ireland. And if you haven't seen the news, um, some dramatic events took place there over the last week. The McGann family, who are two brothers, aged 58 and 64, and their sister in her in her 50s also, uh, were evicted from their farmhouse home in Falsk, and that's near the town of Strokestown in Roscommon. I spent the past few days investigating all that I can about this situation, and by speaking to people involved, I found out some unreported stuff about it, and particularly mm. about the use of security guards from Northern Ireland in evictions. And this is exclusive Mm. stuff to the Irish Passport podcast, and you're going to want to hear it. Okay, all right. So very exciting. I'm dying to hear what you've dug up. Um, But for our listeners first, though, uh, let's walk uh, walk everyone through the eviction, uh, see why it was so controversial, and see what happened immediately afterwards. Okay, so a video emerged online of an eviction, which occurred last Tuesday, December 11th. So in this video, which you might have seen, it's filmed in the driveway of a house, which is one of those small farm-type cottages that you see in rural Ireland. They're often, you know, typical homes uh, that older people might live in. And this shows an elderly man being very roughly treated by men who are dressed in black. You can see one man being held down on the ground. Another one is kind of being pulled around and held by his arms. And you can just about see an altercation which is happening on the edge of the screen. So let's hear a clip of that video which really took off on Facebook immediately after this eviction. Don't fight them, Paul. They're in the wrong, they know they're in the wrong. They're all on Facebook at the moment. I won't take it away. I won't take it away. I won't take it away. Don't lay your hand on me. I'm not touching you. Don't lay your fucking hand on me. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Yeah. You're a bit of a salt nut. You should be fucking ashamed of yourself. Fellow Irishman, yeah, should be f- you're a fucking disgrace. You're English? British. British, oh yeah, British bastard. He's bastard, you'll be run again. Okay, so as you can hear there, I'm sure it's it's actually a pretty violent scene. But here's the bit that got people really talking. Now, if you listen there closely, you might have caught a bit of the conversation which is taking place between the guy who's videoing and one of the men in black. Now, the guy in black uh, carrying out the eviction says in what sounds like a Northern Irish accent, you men are something else. The videographer replies, 
You should be fucking ashamed of yourself. You're a fellow Irishman. You're a fucking disgrace. As someone else then says, he's not an Irishman, to which the videographer asks, you're English? And the man in black says, I'm British. So we're going to get back to the significance of that exchange in a minute. Mm. But first, let's hear an account of one person who was a witness to the eviction, who was interviewed in a Facebook Live broadcast by the activist Anna Kavanagh. We went out to the gate and there were 22 or 23 or 25 fellas with black, I won't say paramilitary, but black, some kind of black uniforms. I'm, I'm looking in the, the gate and they're still there with their black uniforms on them. And uh, they came in and they said that they were taking possession and that we had to get out. And they took one gentleman who'd... Uh, be a man of 63 or 4 and he put his hands up and objected and he wanted to see on what uh, what legal authority had them there they grabbed him, they threw him to the ground they battered him and I don't know if he got a kick or what he got or one of them punched him but he had some broken teeth and he was bleeding and bleeding badly he didn't raise his hand to anybody he didn't at any time attempt to hit anybody or do anything, there was no assault from our end there were two dressed members of the Garda Siakana claimed themselves to be members of the Garda Siakana standing outside the gate and they were approached and asked what were they doing and they said that was on private property they couldn't win. So they actually saw this assault? Oh yes, absolutely. Well it's on video. It's on, yeah, they did mm. see it. Yes, they did see that assault. Yes. And uh, there would have been numerous other Garda in the area. There was a the old people would call it a Black Maria. There was one of those big machines uh, around here and there was uh, a northern Black Maria that uh, these northern fellas had come on. Uh, they went to drag me out and uh, I said, you should be proud to be Irish. And one fella put his head down to my face and he said, I'm British. And uh, I, I I was ashamed of myself to be Irish on that day. I was all around the world. I was in Australia, I was in Brazil, I was in America. I was always happy to put my chest out and say I was Irish. On that day, I'm very sorry to say I was ashamed to be Irish, to see two members of the Garda Siakana and the man that they were ki- kicking on the ground was an ex-member of the Garda Siakana. And they were unable. I don't know why or what was wrong. They're supposed to be peace commissioners. They were unable to help the man. There's something wrong in this country. There's something very wrong in this country when, when that kind of thing can go on. So, Naomi, let's hear more about why the residents of this house are being evicted from their house in the first place. It's some kind of bank repossession. So the bank mm-hmm. involved is widely reported to be KBC, which is a Belgian bank with operations in Ireland. I contacted KBC to ask for confirmation about this and they uh, issued a statement to me saying that it's being dealt with by Gardi and they can't comment on individual cases, a kind of stock response. However, mm. this mm. was not a denial and I am pretty sure that they would have issued a denial if they were not the bank involved. So I am mm. thinking they probably are the bank in question. To, to all intents and purposes, it seems to be a, a complex situation. According to, to reporting by the legal affairs correspondent Colm Keane, in the Irish Times. Uh, the house is lived in by, by those two brothers and their sister and there are judgments standing against one of those brothers, Anthony McGann, and that goes back years uh, relating to unpaid tax and debts. Um, some of the debts have been resolved, some of them are still unresolved and apparently they involve various financial institutions from ACC Asset Finance to Bank of Ireland Leasing Limited to ICD Building Society. Now we don't know what these debts are about. We can speculate they were buying additional land, uh, improving their property or hiring contractors, um, but really we, we don't know. 
So here's what happened after that eviction. That video that we described went viral, and so did the subsequent follow-up videos by Anna Kavanagh. Some of these videos were getting hundreds of thousands of views on Facebook. And then on Saturday, there was a march in Dublin where protesters wore yellow jackets inspired by Mm. the gilets jaunes or the uh, yellow vests that have been staging huge violent demonstrations in France. As the marchers were passing KBC Bank on Dame Street in Dublin city centre, they stopped outside of it and they began to make a speech. So let's hear what happened next. 25 members, black and tans, from KBC, their three elderly people yesterday in Roscommon, pulled them out. A man, they smashed his teeth. He was an ex-member of the Garda Shia He went there to help the old people. They're in that. What you hear in that clip is some of the marchers attacking KBC Bank. And standing beside them watching was Ben Gilroy, He's a guy who's previously stood for election for a minor party. We'll hear more about him later. But let's hear what he said. It was a forewarning of what was to come. Hi folks, uh, just a little bit of anger here that we'd sort of do on uh, a KBC bank here at the back. You can understand the anger though, you know, uh, they're sending down paramilitaries again from the north. Uh, to take back homes in Roscommon and the crowd you can see is gathering and they won't be uh, able to do this for very much longer because they're antagonising the Irish people and by doing that uh, you'll see the crowd getting bigger and bigger for the likes of these tugs that come down from the north. That has to stop and it has to stop immediately. Uh, I believe that house is going to be taken back as well. So. Okay, so here's what happened next. Now, not even 24 hours after that protest in Dublin, there was actually a counterattack at the same farmhouse. Now, it happened early in the uh, early hours of Sunday morning, about 5:30 a.m., um, and a large group of people stormed the house, reportedly using hay bales to block the road around it beforehand, and they were reportedly armed with baseball bats. Uh, they t- they burned two cars and four vans at the and the property. The, the images are, are, are really something. Uh, they killed a dog. A guard that was on, dog was on the scene. A guard dog was it okay and they um they they beat the security guards that were occupying it injuring eight of them and putting three in hospital and when you think about those numbers there must have been a a lot of people storming that house if they were injured able to injure eight security guards so this was a pretty significant attack exactly so this whole story is actually thick with historical resonance and we think this is pretty important. So as we like to do at the Irish Passport Podcast, we are going to break the historical meanings of this down. Uh, and I mean, let's just start with where this is happening. Um, of course, in the townland of Falsk, near Strokestown in Roscommon. Strokestown is actually home to Ireland's National Famine Museum. It's a place where some of the most notorious evictions of the famine took place in the 1840s. In 1847 alone, the worst year of the famine, the landlord of Strokestown, Dennis Mahon, evicted a thousand of his tenants. He was found later shot and the people of these same farms and villages were said to have lit bonfires in celebration. This part of Ireland was also deeply shaped by the land war, which of course we've talked about before. Uh, that was a period of rural agitation in Ireland that resulted in mass redistribution of land from the landlords to tenant farmers. Now, a lot of that happened um, through rent strikes and through quite violent boycotts. 
where the tenant farmers basically forced the landlords to sell their land for a cost price. Um, it was something of an economic revolution at the time. Indeed, like we discussed in our housing crisis episode, the repercussions of that echoed down through the decades, not least in places like Roscommon. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Naomi, a listener on Twitter, I believe, Ronan Delaney, pointed out to you that as recently as 1952, in the townland of Falsk itself, the Irish Land Commission, which was set up um, to redistribute land, they acquired a landed estate that still belonged to descendants of of 17th century English settlers um, at that point in 1952. Now, they would have taken it and broken it up for redistribution, which was what was happening all over the country, especially after independence. And we did a bit of digging around in old maps. And amazingly, Ronan, uh, it looks like the cottage at the heart of this scandal was actually part of the gatehouse to that repossessed mansion. So there's a direct <laughs> link there uh, to, to those two very different kind of evictions. Um, so yeah, historical resonance is uh, going on for miles there. So the, the land war continues. Um, but mm. right now on Facebook, as a result of this eviction, there are videos circulating from pages which describe themselves as Republican, which call on ordinary people to volunteer to to join, quote, anti-eviction flying columns to fight so-called black and tans. So we've got Mm. flying columns, which is a tactic used by the old Irish Republican army during the War of Independence. And then we've got black and tans, which is the term being used to describe the security men who carried out this eviction. Tim, can you explain the significance of the use of this term black and tans? Wow, okay. Well, I, like this is, is something else. And of course, it's, it's very deliberate vocabulary that's being used here. Um, the, the Black and Tans were a notorious paramilitary squad uh, who were sent into Ireland to help the Irish Constabulary Police crush the War of Independence in the early 1920s. It was all an idea of, of Winston Churchill, actually, mm-hmm. uh, back then. Uh, he set up these big recruitment drives in England and got thousands of recruits uh, from, from the veterans who were returning from World War One. Uh, now, these guys were called the, the Black and Tans because they wore a combination of leftover uh, black and tan uniforms. Mm-hmm. Now this this pretty much led to total terror really throughout Ireland because a lot of these guys were actually a bit shell-shocked from mm-hmm. the war. Um, you know, they were paid mercenaries and there was no real distinction either in Ireland as to whether they were supposed to be soldiers or were they police or, or what were they. So uh, it, it turned out that they just kind of ran riot and they, around the country, burning uh, towns and villages, torturing prisoners and, and like looting, you know, l- large-scale looting um, all around the country. And they were so brutal that the the Black and Tans have left a lasting legacy in Ireland. And to describe someone as a tan, you know, is really something. It's a real, real insult. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, once again, less than 10 kilometres away from Falsk, this same area, during the War of Independence in 1921, um, there was an IRA ambush that actually killed several British soldiers and Black and Tans uh, who had come down from Northern Ireland. So black and tans is one term being applied to these eviction men and they're also being called loyalists and paramilitaries. And that brings us back to the video clip that we heard earlier. Now it's one thing to kind of metaphorically call someone uh, black and tans. It's another to call them a loyalist paramilitary which refers to a Mm. specific thing that really exists today. The people using those terms are going by pretty much no evidence a lot of the time. Many people take simply the fact of having a British identity, being from Northern Ireland and being dressed in black as enough to conclude that someone is a loyalist paramilitary when that's really not the case. But you see people making this leap a lot online and you can also hear it in this clip of the witness to the eviction. There were 22 or 23 or 25 
fellas with black, I won't say paramilitary, but black, some kind of black uniforms. Okay, so Naomi, maybe you can set us straight on this. Uh, a lot of people will be aware that the term loyalist is, in an Irish context, a description of somebody in Northern Ireland, usually, who wants to maintain the union of Northern Ireland with uh, the rest of the United Kingdom. But the word loyalist, as opposed to unionist, uh, has a much more specific connotation, right? Yes, although this is a bit slippery. You can be mm. a unionist without being a loyalist. And loyalism mm. is a particular political ideology. Uh, so things associated with it would be kind of pro-British, pro-monarchy, against a united Ireland. It also has associations with paramilitarism. But you can have one without the other. There's lots of variations and strands within loyalism. And it has a whole rich history of its own, which has changed over time. So to repeat, having a British identity and being from Northern Ireland absolutely does not mean that you are therefore a loyalist. Okay, right. I mean, let's let's just hammer that point home because, no, it is important. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, especially when people are bandying these terms around, yeah. you know, like here, there and everywhere. Um, and it, this, of course, is a pretty unusual context to hear those terms uh, in rural Roscommon. So I, I gather um, that you have recently set out to investigate everything you could find out about these evictions and find out who actually is carrying them out. Yeah. So, Naomi, tell us, what, what did you discover? Okay, so I'm going to talk you through it. So, it requires, first of all, a bit of context on the security industry in Northern Ireland and in the South. So, I'm going to break that down. Okay, right. Let's have at it. Right. So, there was a big change in the security industry in Northern Ireland in 2009. Before that, Northern Ireland had its own rules and they were different to the rest of the UK. In 2009, Northern Ireland was brought in line with Britain. And part of the reason for that, according to Northern Ireland office, was to reduce, quote, criminality in the security industry. Here's a quote from a consultation paper by that office, which was about the regulation of the industry. Quote, the industry is particularly vulnerable to penetration by paramilitaries because of low barriers of entry to those wishing to provide a private security service. There have been examples in Northern Ireland of private security services being subverted to act as a cover for criminality. For example, the provision of security guards to f provide cover for running a protection racket. Okay, so there were there were some major problems in the industry then. And of course, this was a decade after the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and at that point, the paramilitaries in Northern Ireland had mostly been disarmed. It was actually in that year, 2009, incidentally, that the Loyalist paramilitary groups, the UVF and the Red Hand Commando uh, group, had finally announced that they had decommissioned their weapons. Mm -hmm. And the UDA, which was another terrorist group, said that same year that they had begun to do the same. So there was change in the air. Uh, in 2009. Right. So in in that year, basically what happened was the Security Industry Authority, um, or SIA, which works under mm. the UK Home Office, became the body responsible for issuing all licenses to security guards in Northern Ireland. Uh, so it basically became illegal to work as, say, a bouncer or security guard or in certain other roles without a license from the SIA. And to get a mm -hmm. license, everybody in the industry had to apply to the SIA to get one. So the idea is that going through that process would eliminate people who shouldn't have one, i.e. criminals. Okay, right. And do we have any figures, any official figures on how that actually worked out in practice? We actually do. So the Justice Department published figures as of 2011, and it said that uh, just under 11,000 licenses had been issued, of those, it had received 74 applications from people who had conflict-related convictions predating the Good Friday Agreement. And of these, 69 were successful. So they were issued with a license. So we can say that 69 former Republican or Loyalist prisoners 
were working in the security industry in Northern Ireland as of 2011. However, there is a bit of a catch in these figures. Okay, why am I not surprised? Okay, so what's the catch? (laughs) The SIA says on its current guidance that it has no way of knowing whether a conviction is conflict-related or not. So it's essentially up to the applicant to declare this when they apply for a licence. And just to note, convictions in general do not bar people from getting a security licence. The SIA is supposed to kind of assess the overall application and decide whether conviction is like relevant, whether, you know, it justifies sort of excluding the person or not. Okay, right. So it depends on people's honesty. And then it depends on uh, the person who's going to make a a bit of an arbitrary decision, maybe. Um, (laughs) So so the number of people uh, then who, uh, logically, uh, who may have been ex-Republican or ex-Loyalist prisoners in the security industry may very well be much, much, much higher than those 69 that were declared as of 2011. Yes, potentially. And now, important to remember, according to the British Department of Justice, about 30,000 people were imprisoned as a result of the conflict in Northern Ireland. Um, That includes both Republican and Loyalist people. And that made up as many as about 30% of men who were born in the 1950s and early 1960s. Huh. So there's just tons and tons of men with conflict-related convictions around. And it's actually very important to make sure these guys have jobs. That's a really key part of building peace. The official guidance on that, in fact, from the Northern Ireland office, is that conflict-related convictions should not automatically bar people from work. Right, OK. So, of course, uh, in the context of this post-conflict society, mm-hmm. um, you know, that means that really um, it, this actually isn't that unusual. So being an ex-Republican or loyalist prin- uh, prisoner working in the security industry in Northern Ireland would be kind of within the norm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not at all necessarily suspicious. They might just be doing a totally uh, legitimate, legal, ordinary job. Absolutely. And that's a key point to keep in mind. But here comes the however bit. Okay, <laughs> right. Another however. Let's go. Yes, another however. So I spoke to someone who knows the contractor involved in the Ruscommon eviction. Um, Uh So this person is someone within the security industry in Northern Ireland who's had experience working with the people involved. And he told me the following, okay? First of all, this kind of eviction in Roscommon is is low paid and very high risk work. Sometimes the rates for that kind of pay are only £10 an hour. Um, Evictions in the Republic are notorious for being contentious and the overlay of extra tension Uh, that you get doing it as a person from Northern Ireland makes it kind of additionally risky and unpleasant. So basically, they struggle to get people to do that job. And the only people they get are really not the top professionals of the industry. They're people Uh who maybe don't have a lot of choice for work. He told me that according to his knowledge, two of the people involved in the Roscommon eviction are ex-British soldiers. So in addition, this guy that I spoke with, right, Mm. He has experience working with the guy who was in charge of the Ruscommon eviction in the past. I'm going to call that guy Joe, the guy who was in charge of the Ruscommon eviction. Uh, That isn't his real name. I'm just going to use that as a pseudonym to kind of make things clear. Um, He told me that Joe is very well known within the security industry in Northern Ireland. He has a bit of a reputation. Uh, Part of this is because he's one of the few people who uses uses dogs in his security work. Apparently, that's not widely done uh, because insurance for that is very high. Oh, God, that's terrifying. So this source of mine told me what it was like working alongside Joe in the past in a previous job. He told me that his impression was he was concerned, first of all, that the dogs and the people um, that Joe had in his operation were not properly trained. This is the key thing. Mm -hmm. He told me that during this previous job, he became concerned that not Joe himself, 
but some of the people who were working for Joe had loyalist paramilitary links. I'm talking about ongoing current ones, not convictions dating from before the peace agreement. So this is a totally different thing. What? For, for those, uh, for those um, uh, suspicions this guy had in the past, I mean, does he have any evidence? Was that just rumour? Like, how, how can he prove that? What he told me was when he was working on this job and he developed those concerns about the people who he was working alongside, he ran their names past some policing sources that he has of his own. And they confirmed to him that, yes, two of those people uh, were known as having current loyalist paramilitary links with the South East Antrim UDA. Okay. Um, so that's a breakaway loyalist paramilitary faction that's thought to be pretty heavily involved in the drug trade. Wow. Um, so I want to be totally just to make absolutely clear who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about anyone who was involved in the, in the Roscommon eviction. Um, so the people I'm talking about with those links, they worked with the same crowd, but on a different job, not in the Republic in the past. OK, right. So like, yeah, it, it's maybe worth it to be double clear about that because, you know, these are really <laughs> um, serious allegations. Uh, so, yeah, just to, to hammer that one home as well. Uh, there is absolutely no evidence then to call anyone involved in the Roscommon eviction a loyalist paramilitary. I have no evidence to support that whatsoever. And in fact, the source I spoke to looked at everybody who's visible in that video and None of what he's talking about applies to those people. Okay, right. Now, but these, you know, vaguer noises, these rumours of loyalism coming Mm -hmm. in here and coming in in there. I mean, maybe there's not nothing to those rumours either. Maybe there is something there somewhere. Well, you can see where the rumours are coming from if that's the case. Mm. I contacted everyone who I could to ask for comment, including the person who we call Joe. Also, separately, the person who describes himself as British in the eviction video. I also contacted the office of a security company involved and I did not receive a response from any of those people. Okay. I just want to be really, really precise about the facts that we can establish here um, because these events are very much taking place in a kind of post-truth environment, you know, the Facebook environment, social media and so on. Mm. For example, some of the people who were using yellow vests on that march on Saturday that attacked KBC Bank, they were holding a banner about chemtrails. You know, that's right. a conspiracy theory about that, that, that claims that the white lines that are left in the sky by airplanes are nefarious chemical agents that are controlling the weather. Right. OK, so maybe some people who aren't um, quite at the races. Um, OK, <laughs> right. Um, right. So let's actually get back to that protest then. You mentioned a guy, um, Ben Gilroy, didn't you? Yeah, so he was the one who was sort of narrating as those protesters were outside KBC. He's kind of at the moment putting himself forward as a yellow vest leader in Ireland, mm. but he was active long before the yellow vests were a thing. Mm. And this is kind of like the latest brand or symbol that he's adopting. Uh, He's a former candidate for a fringe party called Direct Democracy Ireland. And he's also very active, has been very active for a good while as an anti-eviction campaigner. But he also champions sort of other issues which are on the conspiratorial fringe and on the right. So, for example, anti-vaccination conspiracies, very strong anti-abortion views, anti-trans views. Um, Mm. I'm particularly grateful to Conal McCallag for flagging this history and taking screenshots of uh, his 
kind of record on this, by the way. Okay, yeah, thanks, Connell. Now, we should note that this talk of loyalists and paramilitaries and so on, that first began with the eviction of the housing activists on North Frederick Street, which we spoke about in our housing crisis episode. Yes, right, of course. And and listeners, you might remember this uh, from that episode. It was about two months ago now, I think. Um, That eviction caused a bit of a media scandal at the time because it appeared uh, that the organisers had brought in men in balaclavas to carry out the eviction and that these guys were, it it looked like they were being protected by the police. Now, we've never had, as, as far as I can see, Naomi, any official explanation as to who exactly those guys were or what rights they had. At the time, um, a few media organisations tried to find out what they could. And by tracing the registration plate, their van was identified as a British registered secondhand police van, which had no tax disc and which used to belong to the Greater Manchester Police. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, you know, these factors and symbols like the balaclavas in particular, they were perceived um, kind of popularly as being being very suspicious and threatening. And unfortunately, they coincided in the very first weeks of Drew Harris being commissioner of the Irish Police Force, the Garda Síochána. Um, now, Drew, Drew Harris is a bit of a historic appointment. He is a former deputy chief constable of Northern Ireland's police force, the PSNI. Mm. And his dad was actually in its predecessor, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, and was killed by the IRA. Okay. So this coincidence of timing of him taking over... And then these uh, balaclavered men with this decommissioned Manchester police van, uh, you know, appearing, you could, like taking heavy handed action to evict people in Dublin. Unfortunately, this fueled conspiracy theories that these things were somehow linked. Um, you know, Harris was appointed and maybe he had something to do with these mysterious mm. heavies at the evictions. Right. I want to make totally clear that that is a total anti-vaxxer, chemtrail, baseless conspiracy theory. Uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, Drew Harris's entire career is in law enforcement. I mean, it's uh, and cracking down on paramilitaries. Um, also, I want to say as well that they they have a heavy dose of prejudice because they are based in the fact of of Drew Harris simply being from Northern Ireland. Okay, right. But in any event, it was a case of very bad timing, and those suspicions were yes. there um, e- either way from from two months ago. I mean, no, mm-hmm. I feel a bit like we're in um like in a John Grisham novel or something, picking up <laughs> picking up pieces of it, information here and there. You know, it's like this thing is bigger yeah. than anyone anyone understands. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um, no, but uh, no. Back to reality. Uh, why are security agents from Northern Ireland doing work like that, like that eviction in the Republic, though? I mean, is that not somehow illegal, or like, at the very least, surely that's not a great idea in case you end up with you know unfortunate um, uh, public perceptions like what happened to Drew Harris? I directly asked KBC about whether it was responsible to use uh, enforcers from Northern Ireland in evictions in the Republic, mm. um, given uh, the sensitivities involved. And they did not respond to me except to issue the generic statement that we referred to earlier, which is like two lines long. I also went to the body that regulates the security industry in Ireland, the Private Security Authority. And the PSA told me that the work of carrying out evictions or repossession orders is simply not regulated in Ireland. They don't issue any licenses for that work. It's just unregulated. Gosh, that's typical. (laughs) All right. Um, uh, But what about uh, in the UK? Is there regulation there? So, yeah, that's that's the SIA. And guidance from them indicates that security guards licensed by them can and do take part in evictions. 
However, it does emphasize that SAIA license holders have no special powers over the public. And it also says that they have no say over what kind of behavior is appropriate. Mm. It's either a matter for the security company involved or the police in bad cases. However, it is the case that SAIA licensed guards are very commonly advertised by security companies as appropriate staff to carry out evictions in the UK. Right, that's that's interesting, of course. I mean, from that video, you know, like the behaviour of the men in black does seem to be, uh, you know, kind of a little bit inexplicable. You know, some people, they're holding back physically. And then at one point, that man who's uh, addressing the guy who's, who's videoing and says, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. Almost like, you know, uh, one of those uh, stop hitting yourself uh, moments. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> no, it is kind of ambiguous, you know, like how far they can go. I'm not touching you. Don't, don't but can someone with an SIA license legally carry out an eviction in the Republic of Ireland? I put these very questions to the. Oh, hang on. I actually, literally, when I'm just talking, I got a response from the SIA <gasps> just now. Will I look at what they yes. say? Yes. Oh my God. Um. <laughs> um they say, no, we don't regulate private security in the Republic of Ireland. Okay. And right. I asked them specifically about these, uh, the, you know, if they could comment at all on the security personnel and their licensing arrangements who were uh, involved in the incidents in, in, in Roscommon mm. and if they had any statement about that. And they say simply, the, this incident occurred in the Republic of Ireland and is outside our jurisdiction. Okay. Um. I also asked them about, uh, you know, how do they monitor risk of infiltration by paramilitaries or or criminal elements in the security industry in Northern Ireland? And they say uh, that they just work closely with the PSNI um, and that most security businesses are well run and good and reputable. And if there's any that's not, then, well, it's a matter for the police. Uh, So that's what they told me. And they said they'd get back to me with updated figures on... um, conflict convictions and so on as as soon as they could. I did find out earlier though that the mutual recognition of UK and Irish licences was explored when SIA licensing was introduced first to Mm. Northern Ireland in 2009 but it just wasn't concluded. So technically in order to perform one of the eight roles which are licensed by the Irish body, the PSA, the Private Security Authority, these are things like locksmith and bouncer and so on, then anyone with a UK licence should need to apply for an Irish licence as well. Uh, but remember, repossessions aren't regulated. Uh, so it's just it's just a total grey area. What the Irish body, the PSA, did tell me is that now the regulation of evictions and the execution of repossession orders is now under review by the government, specifically because of the questions that were raised after the North Frederick Street eviction. Wow, so there, there is a lot of intrigue going on here, um, you know, here, there and everywhere. Uh, but but getting back to Roscommon, uh, now we haven't even got to that counterattack yet. You know, the point where all those vans were set alight in the middle of the night and, w- and when the dog was killed and all that. Um, do we know yeah. anything about who, who did that? Who was involved in that? Just uh, today, Leo Varadkar condemned the whole thing as, as a, I quote, very highly organised, highly violent vigilante attack. Yeah, the short answer is we don't know and, uh, you know, the Guardian are investigating that. Um, now, I, sh- I do want to point out, though, that that same security source who I spoke to believes that there is a link between the counterattack on the, that Roscommon farmhouse and mm. previous vigilante action, uh, which was regarding the former billionaire, Sean Quinn. Are you familiar with this stuff, Tim? Yes, right. Okay. So it's, this just gets more bonkers. All right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Sean Quinn. So uh, if I remember right, that was a few years ago. Uh, he was, at one point, he was Ireland's richest man, right? 
um, mm-hmm. and he's from somewhere around Cavan, Roscommon, around that border area. And he he made a, a bit of a business empire in hotels and insurance and stuff. Uh, but then mm-hmm. he went like spectacularly bankrupt uh, in the global financial crash. And, and, and lost it all. Exactly. So his debtors uh, began taking his property and assets uh, and essentially his family and he fought them every step of the way, tooth mm. and nail. So they, they took whatever they could rescue from their assets and they did stuff like move them to family members and abroad and so on. And Sean Quinn actually ended up going to jail for nine weeks for contempt of court for refusing to hand over assets. Oh, yes, of course. Right. And and of course, that was back in the the very depths of the financial crash. Uh, People Mm -hmm. were furious uh, with the government. They were furious with bankers. Mm -hmm. They were furious with businessmen. And that drove um, a lot of people crazy, basically, that he he had. uh, He was just refusing to hand over his assets. A lot of people argued that those assets, you know, they they didn't belong to him anymore. They belonged to the Irish people. They were owed to Anglo-Irish Bank. Anglo-Irish Bank was being supported by public tax money. Uh, But around the borderlands where the Quinns came from, uh, that family retained this huge local support despite all that. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. like he was just this really popular guy there. He was a bit of a local hero. I think it had a lot to do with him being like a, a patron of the local Gaelic football club and stuff. But... Yeah, so he, he had the support of his of his the people around him while the rest of the country, you know, went mad. Well, some yeah, at least some of the rest of the country did. He has massive local support. And basically what happened is in this context, there was a vigilante campaign which formed Gosh. against the new owners of uh, the Quinn's businesses, the Quinn Group. Hmm. And it's it's supposed that this is, uh, it's, it's the people doing it were kind of people sympathetic to the Quinn family, though, you know, the Quinn family sort of disowned the whole thing. What happened was there were arson attacks on machinery, on buildings, a pig's head was dumped at the home of a director of one of the new owners. Uh, Bullets were sent to people in the post and there was graffiti saying hands off Quinn and stay out of Fermanagh and all this kind of stuff. Okay, right. Um, Hold on, like before you're going off on on a tangent here, Naomi, where does this tie into our Roscommon story? Well, guess who one of Quinn's vocal supporters was in the, all of this? Uh-huh. Now, let's see. Out of our cast of characters, it could only be, <laughs> it could only be Ben Gilroy. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Ben Gilroy, that guy who oh, ran for election for the fringe party, the guy who's putting himself forward as a kind of yellow jacket leader at the moment. Yeah. According to the security industry sp- source who I spoke to, The attack on the farmhouse that happened this weekend and the attacks on the various former Quinn businesses, they have the same MO. Jesus. Okay, so, I mean, well, who do the guards think is involved in the vigilante attacks? In the case of the Quinn vigilante attacks, it's widely reported uh, that they are believed to involve two people who are dissident Republicans, who are members of an IRA splinter group. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, okay. So let me just, uh, (laughs) uh, let me just sum all this up, Naomi. Um, Involved in the same story, then we have, we have some residents here who have lots of outstanding debts in all kinds of resolved and unresolved cases, uh, living on the former gatehouse of a massive, once repossessed uh, landlord house in old time land war country. We have coming on the sidelines, rumours of loyalist paramilitaries who may or may not 
exist. We have British soldiers that seem to be involved. We have these balaclavaed men with British cars who might uh, be involved in, 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 the, in the eviction in Dublin. We're hearing about uh, the richest man in Ireland who lost all his money and then had a vigilante <laughs> mob on his side to get that money back that he didn't even endorse, apparently. Um, we, ha- we have Ben Kilroy, the newly inaugurated Yellow Vest King. Um, and now we have the IRA coming in from the left-hand side here. Is that, is that entirely true? Do I have that right now? The IRA enters stage left. Yeah, so these are um, dissident Republicans, so people who oppose the Good Friday Agreement. Um, Two of the people involved with the pro-Quinn, non-Quinn endorsed vigilante activity are thought by the Guardi to be uh, members of this IRA splinter group. So I don't know, Tim. I mean, this whole thing may just settle down and it'll become one weird twist in Irish history. Hmm. One, just one more incident in the ongoing kind of cat and mouse game between banks and debtors in Ireland. But the the historical resonances, as we say, are very powerful. And bringing in contractors from the north is in the context that we've laid out. Very irresponsible, in my view, hmm. because it's possible that through, not through design, but through sheer stupidity, they could really bring in people with loyalist affiliations and set them up in a context, a violent context against Republicans. Wow. Okay. And and all in in the context of, of eviction. That is just insane. Yeah, it's insane. Um, so yeah, I put this to the bank, KBC. Various questions, the P- PSA and SIA. Nobody really wants to, to talk about any of this. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Or give me any significant statement. Yeah, but I will just point out that according to the World Bank, 11.5% of Irish loans are non-performing. Mm. So basically, they're not being paid back. This is all the legacy of the financial crisis. And part of the reason why that is so high is because of the difficulty of repossession. And it's also partly the reason why Ireland has the most expensive mortgages in Europe, because it's more expensive for everybody else then. At the moment, as part of banks' efforts to have stronger balance sheets and be less vulnerable to financial shocks in the future, many banks and financial institutions with Irish loan books are selling them en masse to other institutions at a loss, you know, these are things are often called vulture mm. funds, but they don't like being sure. called that. The idea is that they take on these uh, these non-performing loans and they get a shot at trying to recuperate any value from the loan. They buy them up mm. very cheap and they try and get more back, basically. And this has given rise to fears that there could be some sort of wave of repossessions coming. Uh, so we're at this really tense moment where people who oppose evictions and oppose repossessions want to show a very strong hand. They want to discourage... Uh, any in- increase in repossessions and it's all very symbolic and very important okay. seems to me that negotiating repayment plans rather than bringing in the people in black balaclavas does seem like the more sensible thing to do particularly as then people don't end up on the street and they don't end up having to go through you know the social services system which is more expensive obviously for everybody god well i mean and keeping them in their own home yeah, yeah. say that again um, and that's, uh, I suppose, a pretty scary note to, to end on because um, that's all we have time for today. And I need to get to work immediately writing my best-selling thriller novel that's going to be based on all of this. It's going to make me my fortune. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for listening, listeners. And don't forget to share our episode. Yes, don't forget to share uh, the episode, uh, subscribe to the podcast, um, tell your friends about it and do write a review if you like it. Indeed. And remember, you can get access to our extra half-pint episodes by signing up and supporting us on Patreon. Um, and that helps us with the cost of making this podcast and allows us to keep making more. You can find our Patreon site at www.patreon.com slash the Irish passport. Thank you so much for listening. Slán everyone. <laughs>